From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. I read a short book recently called The Hatred of Poetry by the author Ben Lerner. Lerner starts the book with a poem by Marianne Moore, itself called Poetry, and it goes like this in its entirety. I too dislike it. Reading it, however, with a perfect contempt for it, one discovers in it, after all, a place for the genuine. Lerner wonders why poetry specifically encourages such extreme feelings in readers, including within poets themselves. You could hardly imagine an essay called The Hatred of Music or The Hatred of Movies, but I grabbed The Hatred of Poetry off the shelf because the title rang true to me, even for me, a former English major. Poetry can be intimidating and inaccessible. Why even bother? My guest today is a living reminder that it's worth it to bother, that it's worth it to wrestle with poetry even when it's difficult. The power of language is uniquely human and it's one of the best parts of being alive. Phil Metris is a poet, author, and professor of English literature at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio. He's the author of 10 books and has won fellowships from institutions like the Guggenheim Foundation and the National Endowment for the Arts. As the product of a Jesuit high school and college education, it's consoling to me to see that a lot of Phil's work takes up themes of spirituality and social justice. And what prompted our conversation was a fabulous essay he wrote for a magazine called The Image Journal. This essay, it was part book review, part memoir, part theological reflection, and we'll link to it in the show notes. I asked Phil about that essay, and I also asked him to read two of his poems, which he was gracious enough to do, and to answer some of my pesky questions about. This was a really fascinating, wide-ranging conversation, and it made me want to read everything Phil has ever written. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts, and thanks for joining us. Well, Phil Metris, welcome to AMDG. Thank you so much for taking the time. How are you? I'm doing, I'm doing well. It's the end of a difficult semester, and I'm happy to, uh, to be in the Advent season for sure. Yeah, I, to get a college professor during like final season, I feel like is a coup for AMDG. So we're, we're glad, glad that you can make the time and appreciate it. Um, you're a poet. Let's do some poetry. I'd love to start with one of your, your poems um, called One Tree. I'm going to ask you to read it, and then I have some questions for you about it. And then we'll go from there and then get a little bit more into some of your background. But let's not waste any time. Let's get right to the good stuff. All right, let's do this. This is One Tree. They wanted to tear down the tulip tree, our neighbors, last year. It throws a shadow over their vegetable patch the only tree in our backyard. We said no. Now they've hired someone to chainsaw an arm, the crux on our side of the fence. And my wife and tousled hair and morning sweats marches to stop the carnage mid-limb. It reminds her of her childhood home, a shady place to hide. She recites her litany of no returns. Minutes later, the neighbors emerge the worker points to our unblinded window. I want to say, it's not me, 
slide out of view behind a wall of cupboards, ominous breakfast table, steam of tea, our two young daughters now alone. I want no trouble. Must I fight for my wife's desire for yellow blooms when my neighbor's tomatoes will stunt and blight in shade? Always the same story. Two people, one tree, not enough land or light or love. As with the baby brought to Solomon, someone must give. Dear neighbor, it's not me. Bloom shadowed, light deprived, they lower the chainsaw again. Well, thanks so much. My first reaction reading this is that it sounds autobiographical. Is it, uh, is it autobiographical, 100% sort of? What, can you tell me about that? Absolutely. Um, we had a dispute with our neighbor about a certain tree. <laughs> and um, it was, in fact, a tulip tree that my wife prized and which covered the uh, the garden of our neighbors in some way um and instantly it just announced itself as a kind of allegory for or, or um an allusion to all of the the disputes we have around gardens and and edens and that sort of thing but also um it, it's it started to take shape as well because it's it's um, it's set as the first poem in the book Shrapnel Maps, which is a is a book about the Israeli and Palestinian conflict, and it just so happens that I live in a an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. I myself is an, am not; I'm an Arab American, and so there's sort of these interesting valences I think that that I wanted to share in there. Um, yeah, so hundred um, percent based on ripped from the headlines, based on life. So. <laughs> Do you, you said that it was pretty quickly you, you felt that, oh, there's something here. Like, what is that process like for you? Is it pretty immediately you're like, oh, this could be a poem? Is that like a tiring way to live? Uh, did, it take, did it come back later? Uh, are you always searching for things? I guess I have a lot of questions around that, like uh, your process from experiencing this to thinking this could be something. Yeah, I, I think that that poem emerged because I felt shame, actually. I felt ashamed by my... Um, my fear about um, the conflict with my neighbors and that was so juxtaposed against my wife's clear sense of right and righteousness. Um, so poems come for me in all sorts of ways. They come in many packages um, and, and, and sometimes experience seems to announce itself as uh, evocative or resonant, but, but not necessarily always. Um, so I, I, one of the things that I'm just very grateful about uh, for, you know, being able to uh, sort of be in a writing life is that when instances like this happen, um, gives me a chance just to sort of make sense of them, make sense of how I responded and how I wished that I would have responded. Um, and honestly, you know, this poem... <laughs> Uh, in, in earlier conversations with my wife, she, she said, this poem's sort of painful for me because, you know, you have been conflict averse in our relationship sometimes and that that's been difficult for us. And, um, so it was a way for me to come to terms with that part of myself. And I hope that in the process of exploring and examining it, that, that it's sort of, um, that, that I'm different actually. And that, that's my hope actually, is that, um, 
is that art poetry is not simply an exercise in putting beautiful language together on a page, but is a way for me to um, examine and explore what it means to be alive and, and how to live and how to live perhaps um, more deeply, more abundantly and, and differently maybe than, than, than we, we've lived in, in, in our actual autobiographical lives. And it's, I do feel like the, the poem's unexpected in that there's sort of a twist because for me, I'm reading and I'm hearing your, your wife's, your, her litany, uh, and I'm just preparing then for you to then take her side, right? I mean, that, that seems to be how it's set up against the neighbors. That's going to be this one versus the other, but that's not what happens. Um, so, yeah, so I, was that kind of turn a surprise, something that you were kind of intentionally playing with there or um, just trying to reflect what had, what had happened? Again, it really did. It caught me by surprise uh, because it's not the way, at least for me, I expected going in. Um, well, I think that Padre Gotuma, who had a conversation with himself on this on this very topic um, on his podcast, um, just really talked a lot about how there's two conflicts in the poem. There's the conflict between the neighbors and there's the conflict between the spouses. And um, so your question is, did did was that a surprise to me? I think what's a surprise is that I didn't recognize it until I had it on the page, you know, um, because that's how I kind of responded. I, I felt badly about it. Um, yeah, empathy is a weird thing because it, um, you know, I felt a little sorry for the neighbors, but, you know, I also felt badly for my wife and her desire to protect this tree. So, um, yeah. Yeah. It feels to me more like, again, the, as you said, the conflict aversion that it's, it's not necessarily not wanting to take sides, it's just trying to like, just, just get, we have to live next to each other. And how do we do that? Like, how do right. we, is it easier just to like, just to not have anything go wrong, right? To not have any confrontation. Um, we have a, a very large tree outside at our neighbors. It's a huge tree and the branches, you know, are, they come and they like, you know, brushing up against the house, or at least they were. It's like, oh, I'd like for that to be, I like, I think it's your responsibility to take care of that tree. But I also like, I didn't want to like ask because I was like, I, maybe if I volunteer, if I offer to help pay for the trimming back of the branches, then they will just do it and not ask me to pay. Uh, but like, how can I not ask directly, but just like, kind of, oh, it's like our son who's the baby's room is right underneath and we're kind of nervous. So there's those things that you live near people that have to figure that out. Um, and so there is that, again, that sense of, let me just, it's easier to not like have this type of conversation. Um, but then the way you say that it's in a book about kind of geopolitical neighbors and conflict, um, I imagine that's not, can you describe how it came to be kind of involved, included in that collection? Was that as you were writing it, realizing this would kind of go with that theme or only afterward thought, you know what, this kind of gets that like more universal conflict between neighbors? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I would say that it was initially embedded in a later section of the book, which is reflecting more intensively on neighborliness and in my neighborhood, which in a way I, I sort of think of as little Jerusalem because it's a very predominantly modern Jewish Orthodox neighborhood, families that are um, quite vibrant and big and a community that's inside this Eruv, you know, this sort of Orthodox perimeter of, um, of community. And um, that section is called Unto a Land I Will Show Thee um, well, 
it, it's um, in, in any sense, uh, in any case, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of poems about me and, and interactions with the neighbors and my children and interactions with the neighbors. But there was something about this poem that just stood out as, you know, an emblem of this wider question of neighborliness. How do we deal with uh, the fact of otherness, difference, in ways that um, that are challenging to us and to our very core at times. So, um, yeah, it was very much part of the book, but it it sort of had this. I don't know. I, you know what it is? Here, here's what it is. It it is both um, particular in a sense, but it also has these universal resonances. And I wanted this book, which is a very challenging book about Palestine and Israel, um, to have a note that's more maybe common to an American reader. You know, okay, everybody, as, you, as you've already demonstrated, everybody has some you know, relationship with neighbors that can be challenging. And um, I think that that's, you know, that's just a good place to begin where, where we all, that's the kind of foyer of this wider question of how do Palestinians and Israelis find a way to live together? How do we? How do any of us live together? Actually, sure. So, can you tell me more about that book? I haven't seen it, unfortunately. But is it is it all poetry? Is it uh, what is the what is the book there? What can you tell me about that that project and, and what? You sure. I mean, about? even this first poem is a prose poem, and uh, there's a number of poems that in the in the book have this sort of vignette like quality, like this one. I wanted to find ways of breaking up poetic, hyper-intensive poetic language with, with story in a way, and also with images. There's a whole set of uh, images in the book that are referring to or, or playing around with posters, with um, redactions or blackout poems of, of other texts, and, and documents, documentary evidence from the 1948 war. So it's a, I, I would consider it kind of poetry, but multimedia as well, and, and hitting a lot of different um, different styles, I think, in order to try to not encapsulate, but to engage with this complex textured set of stories and narratives and, and lives that, um, that are part of the Israeli and Palestinian sort of predicament. I, I will admit that, like, when I looked at some of your poems and read through, I picked this one because, like, oh, you know what? Like, I can understand this, at least. <laughs> I, do, I can tell what's going on more easily yeah. than certain other poems by you or, or other people. And I think that can sometimes be a hang-up for folks who are trying to read poetry, or for myself, even as a former English major, I acknowledge, like, if I can't figure out what's going on or what, then I, I can want to, like, disengage. That's my initial instinct. And I know you kind of, again, you cover kind of a whole wide range of things. And so for, for you, like, well, one, like why different styles? What do you see in different styles? Um, and then any, are there any words you have for at least for your students or for, for me as your student in this hour or half hour anyway, um, to, to approach some poetry that seems difficult at first, but to how to kind of find your way through it. Um, so that's a couple of different questions. Sure. I mean, the simplest analogy I would have is that poetry is like the distilled uh, spirit of, of alcohols. In other words, 
many of us are probably used to having uh, a beverage of some kind, whether it's a ginger ale or, um, you know, a beer or something like that. But poetry is almost like a shot of vodka or whiskey. <laughs> it's it's going to be something that takes a little um, little time with. Although, you know, like with, with a good whiskey, there's a kind of sweetness there as well. There's a burn and a sweetness. Um, and I do think of poetry as like distilled spirits in that way, in the sense that it's distilled language and it is very concentrated um, attention to, to, to language and to world, to word and to world. Um, unfortunately, get, poetry gets like kind of a bad rap because um, it's been taught poorly. You know, we, we have this relentless um, desire to sort of pull poems apart or to find their secret meanings. And, and I think that, you know, if you look at the legacy, the whole history of poetry and where it comes from, it's all about two fundamental things. It's all about uh, the music of language. Um, and it's about, um, you know, it's about story as well. And so if we can get over our hangups about what's the secret to this, and we just let ourselves relish the, the sensuousness of, of language and its sounds um, and the kinds of voice and story that emerge from that, then, then we're going to be okay. Um, so, yeah, I think that, I think it's, it's been poorly taught, you know, it really has. Um, so that, again, for you, for you, as you're thinking again, like a prose poem that again, the story is more straightforward kind of surface level. I can tell that there's a narrative here versus, um, some of, again, your other work in which the, there's not a, a narrative as clearly presented. It's not in written in prose as you're saying. So for you, like, how do you, how do you decide kind of which direction you might take a particular poem? You know, when I started writing prose in, in my midlife, sort of, in, you know, literary prose, not just like scholarship, I, I realized that I wanted my poems to be more musical and I, and I wanted to save some space in, in prose for story. There are certain things that are just easier to get out in prose and, um, and then poetry is going to be different that way. So, I mean, just, just to take one line out of this poem I already read, Always the same story, two people, one tree, not enough land or light or love. I think part of the reason why that line works is the alliteration of land, light, and love. Um, and it's also kind of not true, always the same story. <laughs> it, but it's, I think that the poem speaker is feeling at that moment the kind of faded quality of this seeming eternal um, conflict between us and them, you know, between the self and other. Um, and so it's a, it's a kind of alibi that the speaker employs um, in that moment. So I think that even in a prose poem that's just telling a story that there are moments where the language feels concentrated in a way that pay, makes us pay attention. And that's true for like stand-up comedy too. If you ever like track a stand-up comics, comics uh, punchline, there's always something musical happening, something punchy musically that's happening in those alliteration, often alliteration rhyme, some kind of very, very succinct, powerful punch actually. I want to turn a little bit now to the, like the content of this poem. Well, 
the way it's included in the collection, as you describe. And then I know also a lot of your work does kind of take up themes of things that can be like on a geopolitical scale, uh, questions of violence, war, and peace. And curious for you, you know, there as someone who's interested in, in that, like there could you could have gone to into the State Department, I guess, or into the, the military or um, but to be to be a poet kind of in that space, what what do you think I guess the role of it, an artist could be in some of those those conversations within that that conflict and kind of analyzing what it says about us and what we what we might do about it. Like yeah, why a poet at that intersection, I guess I'm interested. Yeah. I, I did think about going into the foreign service and my sister actually did. Um, so it's something in our family for sure, really interested in the world um, and in other countries and the way they see things. Uh, you know, and in some respects, if I had if I could rewind to the moment where art hit me, you know, back in college, I would I would would have advised, I would have counseled myself to be more profligate with my experiments and in different kinds of writing. Um, I was so headstrong about poetry being <laughs> the, uh, I don't know, the center of my universe that it, that it took me a while to sort of relax that and see other ways of expression and exploration. I mean, I, you know, like like so many of our passions, they they just sort of announce themselves, and we just have to just sort of ride with them as they come. Um, I mean, there there's something to be said for humility in the in the face of like, what can a poem do? You know, as Seamus Heaney famously said, you know, no poem has ever stopped a tank. I think was in his language, and yet um, it's also true that poetry is part of that technology of consciousness changing. And also conscience uh, lifting, um, and and so those are the things that I think that it can do very strongly. There's this wonderful critic that that uh, who I really like, who's a peace builder. His name is John Paul Lederach, and he has a book called The Moral Imagination. And I'm very fond of that work because he basically is saying that lots of the things that we consider uh, part of a readerly practice are the things actually that help uh, people become strong peacemakers and peace builders. I want to turn now and ask you a little bit about um, an essay you recently wrote for the Image Journal, which has some good Ignatian stuff in there. Um, so I want to ask you about some of the things in there. We can go into some of those topics. Um, so toward, toward the beginning of that, you quote um, REM, uh, Michael Snipe, the, the rock band, uh, and uh, Man on the Moon lyric, a, a classic lyric. Uh, from that song, and and after that, which again, in, uh, in which he one kind of crux line there that you talk about is that here's a, a truck stop instead of St. Peter's, so bringing together the kind of secular, the sec, uh, the sacred and the profane. And then you write this: I confess I don't understand precisely what the sacred means, but rather I want to resist it, as Michael Stipe, the lyricist of REM, resisted it in offering us a truck stop instead of St. Peter's. Um, so yeah, what's your deal? Why don't you understand what the sacred means? <laughs> well, this essay uh, came about um, as a sort of commissioned piece, and I really wanted to think about my own resistance to the notion of the sacred, insofar as that um, it can tend to sort of colonize all of life. <laughs> and what does that mean for us? Um, you know, I suppose my resistance to it comes from both a, a very strongly felt um, 
conviction that uh, that that God, whatever God means, exists, and I have to deal with that fact. And at the same time, that I feel very uncertain about making big claims about uh, what that means for for not only me but other people who may or may not have that same experience of some kind of um, presence of God. So knowing the many foibles of our, of the, the Catholic church to which I belong. Um, I get, I get a little scared with this, with the conversations around the sacred. I think that's it. I get a little, I get a little scared with it, you know, like, um, and if I could just speak very, very honestly, like, what does it mean that my daughter who um, announces to us that she's gay, uh, you know, now suddenly is, uh, is in a area of church teaching, which says that her orientation, um, you know, if acted upon as a mortal sin, like, what does that mean exactly? Do you know? So I'm, I, I think it's like, if sacred means uh, that which touches upon or opens into um, the realm of spirit, I can understand it. But if, if it, yeah, so I think I'll just stop there before I fall into some hole that I can't dig myself out of. No, no, and I've re- reflected on this because I think, like, I don't know, at least when I, in my, like, liturgical theology classes, I think we were reading Joseph Pieper talking about the sacred or the sense of, like, sacred being kind of set apart versus profane or, like, coming from, like, outside the temple, like that word, like the etymology right. of the word profane. So there is, like, this kind of demarcation, which is kind of like a human demarcation that we have some stuff that is set aside for these purposes, which was like, I I don't know, at least in our class talking about how that might be like distinguished from holy, which could be like anywhere, but that sacred kind of being like more about that kind of set aside in this, um, which then like kind of also rubs up against the question of the God in all things, like the kind of catchphrase, the Jesuit catchphrase um, that we use a lot, which also comes up in your essay. which seems like a, is that like a necessarily a an opposing way of seeing? I, I guess I'm not sure. It depends on the definition of sacred. But um, you also had some skepticism around like the kind of sense of God in all things, and wondering for you like when you hear that. You went to like Jesuit high school, right? So like I'm sure you've been hearing that a long time. Uh, <laughs> high school, so, college, and now I'm at uh, Jesuit. Jesuit, right? All right. So yeah. So plenty of times you've heard that like a thousand million times. Um, so yeah, when you hear that, what do you think about like what um, does it raise similar resistance in you um, or different resistance? I think God in all things is a is a portal into um, into the way in which creation can be a site of discovery of God and in our relationship to God. So I'm, I'm down for that. I'm down, I'm down with, uh, God and all things with, with the caveat that, um, you know, as I write in the essay that, uh, that, that I, I still think, you know, because we live in a secular world in some ways, a profane world, my parents would say increasingly profane world that, um, that there's plenty of this, uh, the space to, to, to sort of, um, to, to, to mix it up. I mean, here's the other thing, like God and all things. I mean, how's that not pantheism? 
<laughs> right? You read Joseph Campbell. He's like, you know, lots, lots of uh, religions believe in God and all things, but they're pantheists. So, um, so I think the Ignatian notion of God and all things is is more um, tethered to obviously uh, a theology of the of creation as being um, a reflection of of the creator. Um, but not of creators, I suppose. <laughs> well, right. Yeah, I guess like the, uh, maybe like a fine distinction would be uh, God in all things versus like God as all things or all things are God. And oh, that yeah. can see the can see the mark, you know, of the creator in the in the creation. It's, it's a fine line, but Jesuits are into fine lines um, and being Absolutely. very careful and precise. Um, I am curious. So you talk about being in a secular world. Uh, and I think that the piece also kind of wrestles with or, addresses the, these kind of themes of transcendence or the divine or however you want to describe it as like coming up in a lot of places, even in contemporary poetry. And I think about like, yes, in some ways, like this post-Christian world or very secular or more profane, you know, but also like if you look at a lot of contemporary poetry, at least the some I've come across, there does seem to be like a particular a certain genre in, in which there are a lot of people asking kind of big spiritual questions that like God is still in different forms, but God is like in poetry right now, like the questions of that. And I, I don't know if, if one of that is a fair characterization. And then if so, like, why do you think poetry in particular is kind of primed for those kind of the, those quests or the, those questions, big spiritual questions and the transcendent um, in, in a way that is unique maybe? I mean, I, I literally could spend like a day having this conversation with you. So I'm going to try to distill it down in a poetic form. Um, I do think that right now contemporary poetry has a space for a vital space for conversation or, around uh, religion, faith, God, etc. It, it's happening, you know, from figures, you know, like Kava Akbar, um, Christian Wyman, uh, and many, many others. Um, so... It is. It's exciting because when I was coming up as a writer, um, someone who was in a you know sort of a, a mainline institutional church faith tradition um, was often seen as kind of a dupe. You know, like this person is is not obviously is not that smart because they they don't realize that religion is the opiate of the people, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that kind of skept modern skepticism, which I think is very powerful and important, um, both for people of faith and for the secular world, um, is something that, uh, that was so dominant that it really didn't allow for much exploration. Um, and, uh, there was not much space for it. So that, that's completely changed since, since I, in the 30 years that I've been seriously writing. Um, and that's good. That, that's really good. Um, because I think that they actually, this conversation between secular or between profane and, and sacred or secular and spiritual um, is, is very alive. I mean, we live in a society that, you know, seems to be going in two, way, two directions all at the same time. Like, are we becoming less, uh, less religious or more um, spiritual? I don't, I don't know. Um, all I know is that what happened for me was when I went to Russia to, to study with Russian poets and think about Russian poetry, I saw a tradition that wasn't afraid to use the word God in a poem. And that was electrifying to me. 
Um, and it was a place, one of the few places in that society where you could speak about such things. Um, and that was just a beautiful window into um, what was possible. And I don't think I wrote about God in a poem until quite recently. <laughs> um, because I have a shyness about it, I think. Um, but but I, I'm glad that, that we're having these conversations now. Is there something about, yeah, I'm just curious about like, again, whether there's, if, if there, is there anything about poetry in particular that invites those things? Is it that you're trying to get to something deep, talking about like distilled language, searching for beauty, searching for things that are true, I, are there parallel? Like what, what do you think allows for that sort of, at least that historical consonant certainly, but then now even in a more contemporary way. Um, is there something about poetry that is, I guess you could see this is also happening in, in literature and you know in film in different ways, but there is something that seems about like, that poetry lends itself to those types of questions. Well, I think that poetry um, certainly lends itself to, to the, yeah, the ultimate questions like, okay, you know, what does it mean that we die? You know, what does it mean that we don't know what's, if there's anything after death? Um, what does it mean to, to be alive in the first place? Um, I, I think I've found also just that, you know, there's a way in which the lyric poem is a vessel for, or a field for, this self's encounter with otherness and the I and the thou. And it's it's very, very quick that you can move between some I and some you um, that we move, that that you is not just the beloved, but also sort of emblematic of, of God or of, you know, the big other, as uh, Lacan would say. Um, you know, the ways in which, you know, gospel music was, uh, you know, singing to God and that blues was singing to another that was like a god, like goddess or something like that. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly, except for that, obviously, poets are concerned with ultimate things and that the language of poetry, which is both in the Bible and outside of the Bible, um, often has to deal with an encounter with that which is not ourselves and um, that question. So through, yeah, I, I want to lighten it up a little bit because I've been asking some like you to, <laughs> like big, big questions. Um, you've mentioned a little bit of your, your own story as we've been going uh, in terms of uh, writing and being an Arab American uh, in a Orthodox, largely Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. Um, so I, Kind of maybe now we can go back a little bit. Tell me, tell me a little bit about yourself, uh, your your background, and kind of how you started this path. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I mean, it seems so strange. My father, um, who's you know 100% Lebanese American, uh, said that I could never understand poems until you started writing about my family. Um, but at the same time, a hundred years ago, Khalil Gibran had visited his uh, his grandmother at their house, their brownstone, 290 Hick Street in Brooklyn Heights. And so he had a, a fondness for and a fascination of 
uh, of poetry. Um, so yeah, and the the family story, which I think is unprovable, absolutely that he must have written some of the prophet at their uh, at the family house. Um, but yeah, uh, in our family, Hulos Gibran is considered, um, you know, a righteous a righteous dude. Um, and uh, yeah, so that that there's a kind of funny co- uh, you know connection there. Um, he's from this little village called Bshari, B S H A R R I, that my uh, my great grandmother came from, and so that's why he visited her in New York. You know, I don't know if he was like a popular guy, and every you know every Lebanese uh, American family would want him over, but he came to our house, and I have the letter to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> So, but and you, but you did not grow up in New York, right? Uh, no, I, yeah, I grew up in mostly. You know, I was born in California, San Diego, and we moved to the Chicago area for my dad's job. And um, you know, I like every you know young boy of my generation played some video games, and I played Dungeons and Dragons, and I loved sports, crazy about soccer and basketball and baseball. And um, I think it was this moment in high school that where I was starting to become an excessively sensitive boy that um, that I found something in the language of a poem like the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, a kind of mirror into my own um, subjective existence and, and a kind of freedom in that and an excitement for this sort of hidden life that, that poems can explore. And uh, I, I have to say, like, I know that Dungeons and Dragons is now cool among a certain, you know, young, young and older person set that when I stopped playing Dungeons and Dragons is when I started writing poetry. Because for me, there was something about each of them, which was an exercise in the imagination and in world building and in, um, and in play. Hmm. So said you're fully Lebanese American on your dad's side, but not on your mom's side. I'm, I'm half Jewish. My dad, the whole family, Ashkenazi Jewish. My mom's Irish Catholic. In terms of growing up like Catholic Jewish, a lot of identities in one person trying to like figure out what that means. And so you're, but so in your mom, on your mom's side, um, what can you, what are you? Yeah, yeah, Irish and German. Irish, Irish and German. German. Yeah, so also kind of coming together of a lot of different things. Did that like? Did you feel that like? Uh, I always feel very Catholic among my Jewish relatives and very Jewish among my Catholic relatives. We're just kind of feeling of a lot of places or united by faith, though. I mean, so yeah, I'm curious about that kind of in your your own background. You're, yeah, I mean, it's a gift. This outsiderness is a little bit of a gift. I translate uh, a poet named Sergei Ganlevsky, and Ganlevsky's father was Jewish. His mother was, um, you know, Russian Orthodox. And so he said that according to the Soviet Union, he was a Jew, but according to Jews, he was not because of his parentage. And that's sort of like your case as well, mm-hmm. right? And there's, and he's like, I'm accepted by no one. And there's something, I don't know, kind of interestingly freeing about that, um, uh, but also strange you know, I mean, I look, I favor in my looks like my father's side of the family, but um, my my Arabic is virtually non-existent. Um, and so in Arab spaces, uh, I often get, you know, talked to <laughs> in Arabic and I feel horrible about not knowing it. Um, so, uh, yeah, and, and their relationship was, I think, 
cemented not only by their mutual attraction for each other, but also by their faith. And uh, they were both Catholic. Um, and that, that was something, a bond that they shared and a worldview that they shared, which at the time uh, was, you know, incredibly uh, powerful and um, important to each of them. And it remains so to this day. But culturally, there was a total clash. The wedding must have been absolutely hilarious. I wasn't there, but I understand that uh, my mom's family was just very sort of like New England, uh, sort of, uh, you know, very, you know, we don't hug or anything like that. We don't say we love you. And then my dad's family, which is like just wild, like my big fat Greek wedding type situation. So. And, and, you know, they, I think they had a hard time figuring out how to relate to each other because my mom was just like, who is this guy? Why, why does he act like this? Um, so definitely attraction of opposites for sure. <laughs> um, before I ask you, if we bring it to the close, well, I'll ask you to read one more poem. I, I did want to ask about your teaching now at, at John Carroll. Uh, again, speaking of being in a lot of different worlds at once, you, you're teaching poetry and literature, but then also it looks like you're connected to a kind of peace and justice studies there. And so, yeah, what, so what do you, how do you spend your time uh, at John Carroll? Yeah, I was hired as a professor of English uh, 21 years ago, and I am a full professor now in the Department of English. I'm also the director of the Peace, Justice, and Human Rights Program, which is an interdisciplinary major and minor and program that helps students explore issues around peace and conflict and justice and injustice. And it's to me like an absolute delight to be able to run a program whose um, faculty are spread out across the university and whose, um, you know, foundational kind of ideas are really, really close to my own, um, my own passions for creating more peaceful and just world. Um, so, you know, this semester, for example, I taught two classes. One course was Introduction to Creative Writing and have an absolute blast with that, trying to create community among students um, who may or may not identify as writers, but nonetheless who will use, uh, use writing to explore their own lives and, and their own worlds and the worlds beyond the ones that they know. Um, it's just, it's a real... It's a real gift to be able to accompany students through this process of exploration of self and world. Um, it can be just absolutely gorgeous when it when it works right. Um, and then the other class I taught this semester was a course on Israeli and Palestinian literature. And although I don't teach my own book, um, the book is definitely informed by teaching uh, teaching this material. And um, in some sense, it's my attempt to finally try to write or say something about, about it. Um, so, um, and that class is, is more of a PGHR type class, even though it's, it's, it's in the English department where students are compelled to encounter um, the stories of Palestinians and Israelis, sometimes in conflict um, and um, trying to figure out how to, how to relate to each other, you know, as neighbors, as human beings. Um, who have different ideas about what the land means to them. And um, yeah, so it sounds like, uh, Mike, I should send you a copy of the book since, um, you know, you yeah. use, in yourself, you have all of these traditions and legacies and, and, and backgrounds. Yeah, no, I would. That sounds great. I can buy my own copy, though. We'll charge it to the Jesuits. We can maybe you can make it. We do have a Jesuit book club. Um, we've had uh, 
we've had Mary Carr and uh, Kirsten Valdez Quaid and Alice McDermott. You know, we've we've had some good guests at our Jesuit book club, so maybe we'll have to uh, make yeah. a selection. That sounds like yeah. fun. Yeah, um, a lot of pros for sure. Actually, one yeah. of my one of my most uh, most proud moments was when uh, a colleague of mine who's no longer here, uh, Jamie Steyer, said that he was praying over my poems uh, for a Lent, and I just thought like. All right. Well, this is, I feel like I've made it now. Jesuit is praying over my poems. <laughs> nice. There you go. I, one, I just, one question that has come up for me as you were talking kind of about those two roles you have is there is always that question about like the intersection of art and justice. And like, should you be, should, like, can artists make good art that is like more kind of protest song that was like written with a, like a political point in mind versus just like trying to create something just true or beautiful or whatever it is, but that doesn't have like that kind of other motive. It's probably simplifying debates. I'm sure you've been part of those conversations. Like what, mm-hmm. what is it for? Should it be so like kind of on the nose hitting certain themes and like, oh, I have a point. I want to try to prove this point and I'm going to do it via poetry or this play or this movie. Um, so yeah, what, so what are your, what is your thinking around those things kind of coming together? I have ambivalence about it because on the one hand, I want, uh, you know, I want to create a space for um, art that has a passionate uh, and sometimes partisan even point of view. Um, But I'm also deeply, um, deeply in love with writers like Chekhov, who says, you know, that, you know, art is meant to ask questions, not to provide answers. And so... Um, I, I would want a world in which uh, both both of these avenues are explored and contested, and um, and uh, you know, and, and just sort of tested out. Because I think that for so long in in literary study, we've had the idea that uh, you know that literature does not take you know a point of view. Um, that I don't know, like. Why not? <laughs> Why not? I mean, you know, and then other people say like, you know, I don't know, John Ashbery, you know, like, or someone whose work is, you know, avowedly not political will say something like, you know, all poetry is on the side of life or something like that, which to me seems like, you know, you're almost saying nothing. Um, uh, yeah. So Sounds I like God want, in all things. <laughs> I would want both. I, I would want a space for, you know, early Dylan and late Dylan, you know, I mean, look at like the clash, you know, or, you know, public enemy, you know, these, you know, or, or, you know, Denez Smith in, in the world of poetry or um, John Dos Passos or, um, you know, Hemingway. It's not like Hemingway wasn't taking points of view positions. Of course he was. Um, but I think what's so cool about art is that, no matter what our intention is for it, something else happens in the process of that translation from uh, idea to actuality. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. And that uh, really good art ends up being more mysterious, complex, and beautiful than we can anticipate for it. And I know that like, you know, there are people in my world, including some good friends who say, like, you know, the art is never as good as our conception of it. Well, that's probably a good thing. 
That's probably a good thing. All right. I'm going to let you go in a minute, but first I, I'd like for you to, maybe you could get us toward closing by reading your poem devotional after a Muslim prayer. Sure. Um, so I just had the good fortune of giving a talk on um, confirmation and I ended the talk with this poem um, because for two reasons. One is I wanted to slightly scandalize my audience and read in a Catholic setting uh, uh, something that was based on a Muslim prayer, but, but also because I had read earlier that week um, St. Paul's exhortation that we should put on the armor of light. And I love that phrase so much this time of year when it's so dark and um, when sometimes our souls turn dark as well, mine does for sure. Um, it's really good to sort of, to sort of think about how do we, how do we don the armor of light as well? So, this so is, Paul, can I, sorry, can I just interrupt? You said you were giving a talk on, on confirmation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like the sacrament of confirmation, the sacrament of confirmation, yeah. not to like eighth graders. Oh, no. It was to parents. To parents of kids who are going to be confirmed. Correct. And they, they asked a poet to do that. <laughs> that no, I mean, that's good. I used to work at a church and like I, 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 I used to do confirmation prep. I don't know if I would have been that creative. Uh, well, uh, we have a, a very uh, vibrant community and certainly any manner of people could have done this. That was the only poem that I read. Uh, mostly I just told the story of my you know, my two daughters journeys through the process and the discernment process of confirmation. I'd be happy to, I'd be happy to share it with you. Um, it was a great exercise for me because again, I am very squirrely about making uh, big, you know, test testimonials or to testify to, to, to things. And, um, so I'm testing myself, you know, because I think it's, I don't know, it seems so dangerously unhumble to uh, to testify. I don't know, like, I, I this, just I can't get over it. So anyway. I know. Well, this, you know, like that, like there's that to me, that is so Gen X Catholic postmodern. I, I feel like all of the I'm a millennial. And so like, I have none of those hang ups. But like, I feel like all of my Gen X friends who are still in the church at all, which is seven of you. <laughs> all would like agree they would listen to pavement and then have conversations about how like it's hard to commit and to like speak out this way so i, I feel like that but now even reading that piece in image i was like ah yeah this reminds me this is um not my experience but this is i, I i'm really appreciative of the the journey and the questioning um we should, the uncertainty. We, should have, we should have a a, a conversation amongst gen x and millennials because i didn't even know that there was that difference I, it's rough, but I, it, to me, it, it just it sounds like conversations I've had with, um, yeah, I, I don't know, folks who were born in, say, 1968 to 1980, uh, more or less. I got you. Uh, but again, it's, this is, that's not really fair. Anyway, we're going down another rabbit hole. So let's, let's I'm going to come back and set you up so you can. I, I know, but I, I just, just for one second, though, like, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm puzzled, you know, because I have classmates and, and I'm completely envious of them whose hearts are totally at peace in their faith. Hmm. I love that. But I, 
you know, I think that, yeah, and I don't know why that, that I don't. Um, so actually, the oh, I think there was, well, there was that whole, like the Gen X, like the real suspicion of the authority and the, you know, like that sure. edge sure. is definitely there more than my generation, which are the JP2 Catholics who are like just excited about it and positive and with our helicopter boomer parents, you know, uh, but, and not the kind of stick it to the man vibe. Like there's, I don't have that the same way. So like, it's just easier. Authority is easier for me. I don't know. Uh -huh. Um, I, but again, this is just, just kind yeah. of spitballing, but, um, all right. Yeah. I gotta, th I gotta think about this some more because it's, <laughs> it's an interesting topic to me because it, it's actually what I wrote about. You know, I said, um, in the or you know, the thing that I shared with the parents was it's okay to struggle in your faith, basically, and you know that's what Israel means. Actually, it means you know one who struggles with God, and to me that is that's my faith. Um, doesn't mean that I don't feel the the you know feel other things, but that that's that's where I'm. That's what I, I think that's a gift. I can only imagine that's a gift to parents having worked in a church. Parents who themselves feel like they don't know enough to be able to raise like Catholic kids. To have someone speaking like per, like on behalf of the parish to them and saying like that's okay. I think that's an important message. So I'm glad you're able to deliver it. Thanks. Yeah. I don't know. Just gave it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here it is. Devotional after a Muslim prayer. Light my face and light the flesh of my flesh. Light each my eyes and light inside my sight. Light the light that makes me light in the bones and in my hands light and in my loins light. And light your light before and behind me, above and beneath me. Light to my right and light to left. Light to my enemies who in the moral dark will use my light against me. Light the dull swords of my ribs, the thick fist within. Light the blood-hot rooms pulsing there. Light the gates when they swing wide to the stranger. Light more light on my tongue. In the light, light more light. In the black, light. And when it's time to snuff this wick, light that light. Thank you so much. Sure. Uh, for that. Which is a sonnet. Yes, am I counting correctly? Yep. F 14 lines, okay. Um, but slightly different from some other sonnets I've read. There's the repetition, I, I, I guess, the, obviously, which to me calls to mind the the, uh, the breastplate, the St. Patrick's breastplate, you know, that prayer, like Christ behind me, before me, you know, the, the kind of classic uh, yeah. prayer. Um, yeah, so what, what was your, what inspired uh, this poem and maybe specifically about the, the repetition um, what, why the repetition and what do you think that uh, accomplishes here? I don't have an origin story for this poem, but since the around 2010, when I experienced some like extreme back pain, I started writing poems as prayers. The prayers that I have, you know, prayed my entire life um, were not necessarily helping me. And so I really wanted to find language that might help me. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've wrote a number of different poems and this was one of them. Um, I know that it was inspired by um, a Muslim prayer, but I mean, you know, you can hear Psalms in this as well, as well as that, you know, 
St. Patrick prayer. I think that there's um, other prayers that I were, you know, was working with. Um, there's one by Lancelot Andrews that became another, another poem. Um, yeah, I'm not sure exactly what I wanted to do with the poem, except to kind of create a poem that has, um, that sort of envelops the, the speaker and the reader in, into, into this, I don't know, the armor of light, I guess. <laughs> um, there's also a wonderful poem by Arseniy Tarkovsky, a Russian poet, the father of the famous filmmaker, Andrei Tarkovsky, which has this line, you know, I was a candle, I burned at the feast, gather my wax when morning arrives. And the last lines of which are to burn posthumously like a word. Um, and so, you know, it's such a cliche, but it's such a living image. You know, the, the, the light of a candle is being like the light of a, the light of a life, the light of a soul. So. Well, Phil Metris, thank you so much for taking this time and going the 47 directions I asked you to go. Uh, <laughs> this has been just a really uh, fabulous conversation. I'm really appreciative and uh, we'll be, uh, we'll link to uh, that essay and some of your uh, books and poems where folks can find you uh, online. So, but yeah, again, thank you so much for the time and for the conversation. Thanks, Mike. See you in the basketball court. That's right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.